may be seated. There's someone either here or watching, maybe more than one, where you've been thinking about giving up. Don't give up. Don't give up on your faith. Don't give up on the Bible. Don't give up on church. And while you've had some bad experiences at church, I'm here to tell you, Jesus has a church in the earth that is sharing a good news that you can connect with that's meaningful. And part of that is how you understand the Bible, which is what we're going to talk about in this panel discussion. These four weeks we're in, today is the second week of four. Our presenter today is going to be Ralph Rickenbaugh from Switzerland. Pastor Wes, why don't you come on up and join us up here? And, and thank you, everybody, for your prayers. Some of you know I had a very difficult week uh, with flu symptoms. But I have been receiving my healing all week long, and I'm, I'm good. Uh, that's why, if you were noticing my son-in-law, he was doing the Matrix. When I walked up to him, he was avoiding me. <laughs> it was cute. I may bring it around back. Uh, I'm checking real quick our, our uh, chat. So once again, we want to remind you that if you'd like to engage with us during the panel discussion, please text us at 720-878-3323. We're monitoring that. We're also monitoring the chat. And so you can type in uh, your, your comments there as well. Uh, let me real quick, um, John Master Giovanni, who will be our presenter next week, by the way. He'll be joining us in just a moment. In fact, uh, if we could, are they both in our, our green room? Could we go ahead and bring them on screen and we'll just say hi? And uh, so we're going to have Ralph and John join us here and then Ralph is going to make a presentation. Okay, so there's John up on top. John Master Giovanni has been an ordained minister for 35 years. He earned a bachelor's, uh, bachelor's in Biblical Studies, a Master of Divinity, and a Doctor of Ministry in 1992 and went on to further study uh, uh, both the Hebrew language and the Hebraic spirituality through several diverse rabbinical scholars for more than a decade. John ministers across denominational lines, traveling and speaking in different seminar venues and churches across the United States, the United Kingdom, Europe, and Africa. 35 years ago, he and his wife Karen founded Oasis of the Valley, a transformational church located in, Monro in Monrovia. Ralph is a Gallup certified strengths coach, spiral dynamics practitioner, software architect, family father, even family patriarch, lifelong learner, iconoclast, thinker, and pastor in exile. Within the last years, he has survived cancer, started a new career, deconstructed and reconstructed in his faith, and overcome several strokes of fate in his family. He will gladly help you through similar challenges. In fact, uh, he does have a mentoring and uh, walking alongside uh, ministry. I also love to have deep conversations about the, the things people are passionate about. I can help you formulate your dreams, discover your gifts, find your motivation, or I can just listen to you so that you can get clarity. He's an accompanitor 
So he comes alongside. Mentors may not show us the way, but they show us that there is a way. Covenanters walk it with us. So Ralph is going to uh, make the first presentation. And because his native language is not English, he decided to pre-record this opening monologue of about 10 minutes. And so we have that for you. We're going to play it now, and then we'll bring uh, both John and uh, Ralph back live uh, to join us in our panel discussion. Be preparing your questions, writing anything out as you're listening to uh, Ralph's presentation here. Be writing down your questions. Those of you out in the live stream, again, you can chat them, put them in the chat window, anything, any response uh, to what uh, Ralph shares, or you can text them, 720-878-3323. Here we go, Ralph. As I am not an English speaking person by birth, I pre-recorded this to keep focused. Bear with me. Last time we saw that the Bible never claimed to be inerrant or infallible, but I want to give you all a glimpse of just how inspired it is. Today, I attempt to do the impossible, to tell you the overarching storyline of the Bible in 10 minutes. It might get a bit dense. Most of us will have seen the classical attempt to come up with such a biblical storyline, which goes about like this. After we were created in perfection in Eden, we experienced the fall, redemption, the cross, to finally enter the new creation. We usually simplify this picture and leave out the many that just don't make it. Maybe it makes for easier advertisement. Today, I would like to propose a different narrative. It does need some groundwork though. Have you noticed that we today think and see the world different from our ancestors, often even our parents? We recognize this world as a much more complex place. Just think technology, climate change, pollution, polarization, globalization, and so forth. Developmental psychology has looked at the history of mankind, especially under this lens of the complexity of our thinking, and has made a few very interesting discoveries. Humanity has grown in their ability for complex thinking, mostly because their lifestyle has produced new problems they needed to solve. Every individual during their life will repeat the essential steps of growth that humanity went through in the same order. There just are no shortcuts. We today grow through more steps faster because we have people that went before us, while in the past, much of what we just grow into had to be learned over generations. Therefore, only a few will grow even further. We never lose previous ways of seeing the world and can fall back into them or use those worldviews when they seem fit. Different people groups today have progressed to different levels and worldviews uh, that best fit the complexity of the problems they face. If this is true, the Bible should reflect this development with God as the driving force. 
and this has some impl implications. The Bible will be read differently by people with different worldviews because they have a different awareness of the world. The challenge for God, he has to inspire the stories of the Bible to be profitable for us at every level of awareness. God uses different styles to carry many levels of messages, geared at all past and future stages of maturity and awareness. I listed some of the styles in the slide without going through them now. In all of them, he focused less on factual and historical accuracy, but on life-giving revelation. The Bible, therefore, is an account of wrestling with God by people and vice versa, in which we find guidelines, examples, ideas, inspiration on how to re relate with God, ourselves, and each other. Those accounts speak to different stages of maturity, often at the same time, but we can also see development within the Bible from simple to more complex, from childlike to mature. Now we're ready to tell the storyline of the Bible as the account of maturing humanity and individuals through wrestling with God, self, and each other. Baby humanity is not self-aware yet in Eden, but through the development of language, pattern matching and color sight develops consciousness. This allows us to remember the past consciously and anticipate the future. Aware humanity starts to function in small units with blood ties holding them together, units like families or tribes. A baby will grow within the security and safety of the family. Many things are magical. The elders are right. Think Abraham. God is a family God among many. From the security of a relationship with God, Abraham launched out and went without knowing where he was going. He took his family with him because that was his point of safety. He started to take decisions, fought battles, and made mistakes. Like a child that becomes a high chair tyrant and adventurously conquers the playground with necessary quarrels and claims. God is the power God that fights the gods of Egypt. Next, God gives the law, as he is the highest authority, to prevent tyrants like Pharaoh. Moses is kept at bay by the law just as much as any other Israelite, as we can see in the fact that he is not allowed in the promised land. Slowly, our community grows from blood ties, as in the tribes of uh, to a people, held together by a common interest as expressed in their view of God, the law, and culture. Here, humanity develops absolute truth. Think Pharisees. In Jesus, we are prepared for many more stages after the, this absolute truth, hierarchical rules, and law-based worldview. We grew into the next one with the Reformation. We finally got an understanding of the individual. We're not saved by belonging to either Israel or the church, 
where belonging always includes playing by the rules and believing the absolute truth. We are saved through faith by grace in an individual relationship with Jesus. Our old understanding of God has to die as God cannot be the absolute ruler in heaven, the old man punishing and rewarding our adherence to the law. Next, our community will grow even further. The parable of the Good Samaritan Jesus sitting with sinners and exchanging with foreigners leads us to include others. There's no more Jew or Greek, slave or master, man or woman. We become inclusive. The next big revelation we will have is this. Each of those steps is valuable and necessary. Let us be even more inclusive. Include those with different worldviews and include those worldviews in yourself. Be a family man, an adventurous pathfinder, a moral being, an individual, and an inclusive, tolerant, liberal person. Be whatever fits the situation. So let's put this all together. In conclusion, the overarching storyline of the Bible is the narrative of maturing humanity and maturing individuals, the we and the I, in a wrestling, loving relationship with God, self, and each other, told in multi-layered stories that either demonstrate the thinking of one certain worldview or speak to each level of consciousness differently. Now that was a mouthful and that has powerful consequences. Let me give you two examples. A traditional man will interpret the first commandment as an intrinsic motivation to only have one God. A modern woman will argue that if there is only one God, she cannot by definition have other gods unless she creates one. And a postmodern person will see the relational aspect of the verses. Let's recap. Warrior and traditional people have an image of an angry God of right and wrong in heaven, waging his finger and demonstrating his power by reminding the Israelites of what he did when he led them out of Egypt and then telling them not to dare to have other gods beside him. The difference between warrior and tradition lies in the immediacy of punishment. Modernity is concentrating on reason and the godly spark within every individual. It sees the danger of putting self on the throne or creating other gods. Postmodernity, for them, God is relational and inclusive. By not forgetting this relationship, we will not have other gods beside him as an automatic effect of a love relationship. Last but not least, integral, it finds that all three views have value at times in our lives and help us grow. The second example, a person steeped in traditional moral issues and an understanding of right and wrong according to a traditional interpretation of the Bible is perfectly on God's path. 
and learning valuable stuff, but cannot understand more complex issues like inclusion. While at times loving the magic nature of some stories of the Bible. To defend their absolute truth, they will go to the trenches and become a tyrannical warrior child again, which can be defensive or just a natural reaction to first doubt when one goes on to grow further. With an open mind, they can go on from glory to glory, search and you will find. Taking the Bible as inspired versus inerrant allows us to detect and discover even more levels of consciousness in the future and therefore allows us growth. No man could have come up with this. The Bible has to be inspired. Easy for you to say. <laughs> uh, so I've watched that a couple of times and put the captions in. So I've seen it numerous times. Wow. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch there. And I didn't introduce you yet, but I'll just say this is my friend. This is the pastor of the church here, St. John's Lutheran of Thornton, uh, where Genesis Gathering co-locates. Uh, he's pastored over the past 27 years, I believe, multiple congregations, and uh, most recently this one. I believe this is his fourth year here. And uh, he's just, uh, he's smart, he's funny, he's witty, he loves Shipley's Donuts. Yes. His wife is a doll, <laughs> and uh, my wife couldn't be happier working for him as his administrative assistant. So Wes spoke last week and led our time regarding the subject of infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration of the Bible. So you'll, you'll want to listen to that one. Today, with Ralph's uh, introduction here, we talk about the overarching storyline of the Bible. You raised your mic like you want to tie into something. That was just fantastic, Ralph. And yeah, it's my third time seeing it. And now with the captions, reading helps me let it seep deep down. And it's just, and it's a great continuation of the conversation that we were all having last week. And I know in our WhatsApp uh, interactions. I threw some things at Ralph yesterday or whatever day it was on Lost on Days. Um, and so I we've been that. back and forth with this for about 24, 48 hours. Um, so we're just percolating a lot of ideas. I just, it is absolutely fantastic. I'm getting more out of it this time, Ralph, than the other two times that I listened to it um, and scribbled some notes. Um, I have some specifics, but I'll wait until we so I, I have a copy of that back and forth between mainly Ralph and Wes. I mean, it just got so deep. So at the end of it, I finally just put in my two cents. Jeesh, I'm left sucking from the marrow of the divine mind, and humbly so. <laughs> I just We were so. having fun, Ralph. We yes. were just engaging. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so do we have any first questions that want to be presented? And thank you, Kathy and Jack, for your feel better and uh, your prayers. By the way, the slides that you saw Ralph uh, present during his, his talk are right here. I have uh, 10 copies. 
uh, for anyone that would like that, each of the slides I have here. And then uh, also, if you will let us know, you can put it in the chat or text us at the number we've provided. Uh, we will uh, send you the PDF as, as well, okay? Any first questions? I, I'm going to pose one if, if there aren't already, and Ralph, what I want to do is ask you to go back to the, uh, I think uh, it's the first slide, Jeff, uh, Peter. So it's, it's the one where you said, so a lot of traditional uh, architecting of the storyline has taken place, and it you know, typically looks like this. Can, can you just explain a little bit? Because it, it looks like you're saying that that typical, this is how I was raised, you know, perfect Eden, and then Adam sinned, and then we fell, and we're living somewhat in a fallen nature and, and world today. Those who believe the right things in the right way and pray the prayer, uh, they get a fire insurance policy, and uh, uh, we'll meet Jesus in heaven later. The rest of the many are going to go into the fire, which is, uh, can we put that graphic up, Jeff? It's, uh, I, I know I have it under sermon notes there. Uh, and which you said just won't, won't work. <laughs> that just won't work. So can you elaborate a little bit on that, if I could? Yeah, when we, when we look at the history, history of, of humankind, we will uh, easily see that there never was a place where we were perfect. And uh, believing that uh, just brings us into conflict with science. And I believe that this conflict is unnecessary when you see the whole story differently. Instead of being put into Eden as, as perfect uh, Adam and Eve, uh, which then sinned, when we think of it like they're being unconscious in the beginning and just one with nature, one with everything, probably proto-conscious, uh, which means that they were slowly getting aware that they're different from the rest of the world. And so they started to name, uh, Adam started to give names to things and, and, uh, and all that. But when we see the whole thing as a trajectory that God set us on, uh, of maturing, of greater awareness, of, of learning to think more complex and so on. Uh, there is no no problems with with um, current uh, scientific understanding or anything like that. And the other parallel I want to point out is this. It wasn't at that time, even when we go with the 6,000 years that people count uh, or calculate by counting up all the ages of the different people in, in the uh, geneal uh, ge genealogies, there was no awareness of uh, good and evil back then. Uh, there was no guilt. There was shame. And when we look at the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, what they developed after the after what we call the fall was actually shame. They were ashamed that they were naked, but they were not guilty. And uh, it took, uh, as Paul points out in the New Testament, it took the law for us to understand what guilt is, because there is no sin without law. And and therefore, I think that when the story was penned down. Uh, shortly after the exile or during the exile, 
people that already had the law and had an understanding of sin, of good and evil, and and uh, had an understanding of of um, obedience, they were looking at the story through their lens, and they saw that there was a fall, that there was something wrong with Adam and Eve. Uh, at, at least in our understanding, understanding as we tra interpret it. Now, John uh, interprets it totally different. different. But, but I think, I think that, that at that, that time, time, it wasn't possible to, to um, experience or uh, have the emotion of guilt. It was the emotion of shame, which is absolutely on the right path. When you become aware and you become aware that you're different than the other, like Adam was different than Eve and vice versa then you experience shame and not guilt. Wow, I'm, I'm and, hearing a couple of things here, Ralph, that are so important. So first of all, we can take that slide down, Jeff. First of all is the fact that we should not consider those first several chapters of Genesis as this dark moral failure, all right? That's just because that's where all theology tends to start is that we start out of failure. We start out of sin. And at that point, you know, it just kind of goes downhill from there unless you do the right things, believe the right things. And then you said it, and John, I've heard you mention this before. Maybe you want to speak to it, that, that there was no sin until the law entered. Do you all understand that? Paul said that in Romans. Without the law, there isn't sin. So they experienced shame, but they did not experience, quote, sin because the law is what brings judgment. That's, that's in the absence of the law, there isn't sin. And so there just wasn't this break in the relationship between father and creation that we've been told because of sin. There wasn't sin. They felt shame because they had, John, you expound. Um, can everybody hear me okay, first of all? Yes, very well. Great, great. Um, I just wanted to, first of all, commend you, Ralph. That was absolutely beautiful. Um, in uh, that 10-minute discourse, I thought, man, I need a copy of that. I'd like to show that to our congregation at some point. Um, the, the thought I had, and I have a Bible verse I want to suggest to you, and, and right now, some of you may or may not know, I'm writing the second volume, not second edition, second volume of Melchizedek, our gracious king priesthood. It's called Tree of Life Realities. And I'm in the final chapter right now, and one of the things I'm addressing is this, is this very issue. And one of the things I suggest, which is what Ralph, I think, has suggested too, maybe from a slightly different angle, but I think we're ultimately on the same page. We need to renew our thinking that partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was some violent, horrible thing that happened and that we, um, um, as a result, became these horrible, wicked sinners and, and uh, we needed Jesus to save us from our debauchery, that kind of idea. Rather, um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil becomes part of a process. And I'd like to read a verse to you it's out of the Phillips translation of Romans 11.11 on what I would call, how about a tree of life perspective of a quote-unquote fall. So remember who Paul is speaking to. He's very legalistic Christians in Rome. They already have this idea of fall. But listen to his words. Now I ask myself, this is Romans 11.11. 11. Now I ask myself, 
was this fall of theirs an utter disaster? Speaking of Israel. It was not. For through their failure, the benefit of salvation has passed to the Gentiles with the result that Israel is made to see and feel what it has missed. For if their failure has so enriched the world and their defection proves such a benefit to the Gentiles, think what tremendous advantage their fulfilling of God's plan could mean. Notice this very different point of view of fall. He looks at it from the standpoint of when this event that we may look at as a fall or doing something wrong actually becomes a pathway to riches. So it, it's an issue now of, for me, is about, about becoming, and I believe Ralph used the word conscious, um, self-aware. You know, one of the most powerful things I think God was doing was making a creature in his own image. But from the beginning, the creature was ignorant of that. It wasn't until he, he and she has this liberty to choose to walk this path and stumble along the way. Do they become conscious enough to the point where we could sit here today in the year, you know, 2022 and realize to some measure that we are a mirror of God. We're an emanation of God. We are his likeness and image. And now discover what it is to have, if you will, a relationship with a Trinitarian concept equal with God at that level. Where if we rewind to say the time of Moses, God was still out there somewhere. Um, that I had to pray to. And we still, some, many times in Christendom, we still wind up doing that. We, we, we still talk to a God that's outside when actually it's not just he's in here, that the reason we exist is because we're an emanation of him. And that's, I, so I don't know if that's totally answered your question, Jeff, but I wanted to kind of echo uh, what Ralph said, maybe from a little different perspective. I don't know, but I think it's on the, on, on the same track. So, so since our topic is how to read and understand the Bible, I mean our series title, it seems to me that what you're saying, Ralph, John, Wes, is that we, we need to get Genesis right first. If we don't Amen. get the first couple of chapters of Genesis right, our whole view of the Bible is it's going to be skewed. Up. All messed up, yep. Yeah, if I, if I could just say one thing real quick on that. The phrase I like to use about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that it's the seedbed of all revelation to follow. Genesis is the seedbed of all revelation to follow. <clears throat> one of the subtleties that I'm hearing in both Ralph and John is our perception, our image of God especially in Genesis, the first few chapters, but throughout the Bible, but maybe even more devastating way is in each of our own personal psychologies is we instinctively have an, a view of God that God is an angry God. And I'm not hearing Ralph or John intimate that in any way, shape, or form. When you start to unpack this, God is not angry. Maybe our perceptions of God is there's an angry God. Maybe the storytelling that we have done down through 
the millennia is that God's angry and therefore going to squash the enemy. Those are our perceptions. Those are our want tos. But I'm, you know, and, and Jesus was so clear that God is love. You know, and I trust Jesus in a lot of ways. I, I just, I trust that Jesus got it. God is love. God's not angry. God's not looking to get you. So at a personal level, a pastoral level, we need to get rid of that. Oh, if we could just cast that demon out. God is angry. But so much of what I'm hearing Ralph and John say is, is that's not who God is. God, yeah. God didn't, you know, this banish them from the garden and run them out on a rail. No. Really good. That. So that's helpful for me. A question from a congregant here. Are the Bible stories fact? Did they literally happen? Or are they just inspired stories? Who's going to tackle that one? I'm going to start. I think they're truer than true, but they're probably not all historically factual uh, or correct or inerrant or anything like that. I think there are uh, many of the stories are so-called archetypical stories. Those are stories that are told and told over and over again to portray a certain truth. Back in the time of Jesus and before that, we didn't have the same understanding and notion of truth as we have today. Today, something is true if it's factual, historical, empirical, scientifically valid, uh, provable, you name it. Back then, something was true when it brought life and portrayed a deeper meaning. Uh, a moral at the end, uh, without being moralistic, but a moral at the end of the story, something we can learn from the story that goes much deeper than if we just look at the story as being historical. Like you can learn so much of the story of Cain and Abel because that is a story that is repeating itself over and over and over again in our lives especially when we take into account that Jesus said not only when you do it, but also when you think it, you have done it. Uh, then we all have been Cain and we all have been Abel at times. So the story of Cain and Abel might have happened, might not have happened, but it happens all the time within our lives. And so it's more true than just historic literature. So it's more important that we apply ourselves when we're reading the Bible and especially the Old Testament and the stories, if you will, to ask the question, where am I in this story? And where, more importantly, where is Jesus in this story? It's the, it's the Emmanuel path way of translating or understanding the Bible. The Emmaus, excuse me, the Emmaus road of understanding the Bible. That Jesus, when he was traveling with the two on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, opened the scriptures to them. And from Moses through the prophets and forward then, 
explained it all to them. So it's a forward-looking that ends and arrives at Jesus, not a backward-looking from our respected theologians and voices and people that interpret the Bible for us, and then finally we get to Jesus, and we're pretty screwed up in our understanding of the Bible by then. So anybody else on that question? John, you look like you were about to... Yeah, yeah, I, I got a, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, um, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, to me, answers this question directly. He says this in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read it out of the New King James Version just for the sake of, of uh, old, an old English flair. But it says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. This is Galatians 4.21. Do you not hear the Lord? Now, listen to the Apostle Paul's words here. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Um, the Greek word used there is uh, allegoromania, which means an allegory. So... Did Abraham really have two sons? Possibly. Does it really matter? Not based on the inspired truth that he's trying to get to us about these values. Because then he later goes on and Paul compares the two sons to Mount Sinai, which hadn't even happened in the narrative of Abraham yet. Sinai doesn't occur to Moses, but he connects all these dots because of their spiritual truths. Now, personally, having studied Hebrew for close to 20 years now, and studied with rabbis, not Christians, rabbis. Um, I don't know of a rabbi yet, for example, in in a three-month time, going to different classes. I found something interesting. Three rabbis, didn't even know each other, said this comment. Who cares if the story of Noah is true? What we need to extract is what the truths of the story is, as opposed to looking at it as a historical fact. And, you know, does it mean there wasn't a flood? Yeah, it could be. Um, I doubt it covered the whole planet. Um, But nonetheless, it's that idea. What is the inspired spiritual truth? I think that's what Ralph Ralph was addressing. Um, That's there because, honestly, those are going to be more eternally impactful than whether or not we sound, found a piece of wood up on the, the side of Mount Ararat to only prove that, gee, I was right and you all were wrong. I found the, uh, Noah's Ark. You know? the, when you said that, uh, John, what came to mind was that's so Jewish for those three rabbis. Every week I listen to a podcast. Uh, both It's uh, Bobby Williamson and Amy uh, Robertson. Amy Robertson is a Jewish scholar of Hebrew scriptures. They were students together getting their PhDs at Emory University, uh, Candler Seminary. Um, and to hear them interact with the text, it's so Jewish. They just don't ask that question. They're just getting at it a different way. And they do that thing, and we could have a whole session on just what Midrash is. They just play with scripture. We don't. We have this reverence for scripture, which is not a bad thing, but it's, it's gone overboard to the place where we don't know how to engage it and it engage us. Um, wow. Uh, the road to Emmaus. Cleopas 
and you know the other person is not named. I think Luke did that on purpose. You know who that other person is? You. You are there with Jesus. On the road. And walking. Cleopas on the road. And you are going back through all of Scripture and finding Jesus in places you never imagined. So, Is it possible, uh, you guys, that we get so mired in the technical of the words, you know, the Scripture, chapter and verse, and trying to prove them right or wrong, that we start sucking again on the limbs of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what got them in trouble in the first place. And we cease viewing Scripture as Jesus' way of bringing us into life, into revelation of who God is and who we are in Him and, and so forth. So we start treating it as a legal constitution rather than a book of life, which Revelation calls it a book of life, not a, not a constitution. We have a second question here that came in through the chat. With most of Americans stuck in, quote, know-it-all teenager phase, how do we communicate the freedom in relationship to Christians without activating defensiveness? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that that really is a biggie. Uh, first, I want to connect it to the previous question because the notion of truth came about when science was emerging. It was uh, Luther, Zwingli, and all the other guys back then in the Reformation that uh, brought about the individual. The notion of the individual brought about the asking of questions and therefore uh, started the scientific endeavor that we uh, still are in at the moment. And then the church had to defend itself against the scientific, against words like Nietzsche's God is dead and so on. And so they took on scientific truth of historicity, factuality, empirical things and all that, and started to defend the Bible as if it were a lab book of the creation and a lab book, a history book of, of what happened in the past. And so we're still in that, or the church at large is still in this defense mode against the next step that they didn't want to go to a step that God initiated through Luther, Zwingli, uh, Calvin, and uh, Hus, Wycliffe, you name them all. But the church didn't want to go there, so God got the world to go there in science, and we're still defending ourselves in that. Now, how do you change that? There is no way to force anybody to think more complex than he is ready to do. Hmm. Most people in the US obviously have to think modern because they're in jobs that need modern thinking. And but when somebody decided that he wants to think traditional, as most of the church still is in a traditional mindset, it is a conscious decision for them not to go further. They want their center of gravity where they act from to be in tradition, and it's hard to get them out there. All we can do is change the environment, change the circumstances they run into. 
put things like this discussion, this panel on, on YouTube for them to find so they can listen to it. And like a water drop, probably that's going to erode something. Uh, be there when they have questions evangelize them in a good way to to see oh the freedom those people have and the love and and the joy they have with christ while i'm just being obedient and trying to do the right thing and they have so much more freedom and so much more joy than i have and so on you cannot do anything uh, to force somebody to change his mindset but you can provide an environment where they can grow so in that stream, I, I think you floated the idea during your presentation, Ralph, uh, that I picked up on, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that God inspired, God wrote the Bible in such a way that it can apply to wherever a person is in their complexity. Absolutely. Because I might be far more, quote, complex than somebody in... A, 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 a jungle town who has never, you know, uh, had all of the access to the things that I have, such as the internet and the modernism of society that we live in, and, and yet God loves them no less and just the same, and they're just as saved and just as precious and yet they have to relate to God in either a revealed word or should they come across the Bible, how are they going to interpret it? So I loved that point that God wrote these various stories through the pen of men and men and women in such a way that people of all complexities could understand them. You, you had some things written out. Did you want to go there or? These are my notes from, and Ralph already got these. Um, okay. And I'm just wondering if there's. Do well, we have any other questions? Uh, anybody in the sanctuary thinking of something and you just haven't asked it yet? Or I don't see anything else. Uh, I would just like this. Jack I, I, I would. Sorry. As they I would go, just like to su something? suggest yeah, Kathy. as okay. we look at um, some scripture. scripture that for example in i think it's matthew 16 and followed by matthew 17 i think an interesting idea pointing to again what we're talking about is at the mount of transfiguration in my point of view jesus never changed it was it was peter james and john's whose perspective changed they were able to look in and see the brightness of christ but jesus never changed he was always that it was their perception, perception that changed. changed. And we can't force that. That we can only, mm. I, I think as a, 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 a true mentor, and Ralph alluded to this somewhere, I don't remember where, I don't know if you said it in this Ralph or some other time, but really what a mentor can only do is walk alongside you. Jesus says, you know, let's take this journey, this path together, as opposed to I'm right, you're wrong, you need to learn the truth from me because you don't have it. Uh, that's not how divine truth, divine reality works, if that makes sense. You know, what's really great for me about these panels is it helps me feel small. 
I listen to these guys and it's just like, yikes. If I had to try to say some of those things, that's why I don't, I've never written a book. Yeah. Have you ever written a book? I can't, I can't write a book because I'm not done reading. <laughs> and, and John's working on the second book. I, I've been waiting for the second volume of Melchizedek. So, you know. Oh, and that's just Melchizedek. He has several other books. Yeah, no, I just, I'm focused in on Melchizedek because it was so rich and, and it worked so wonderfully with me, yeah. for me at that time. Um, you did tease out something, and I'm going to get back into the things you said, Ralph, um, in your intro about progressive revelation. Um, we had creation in the beginning, and, we, and you walked us through the biblical period of time, but then you jumped to the Reformation as just a reference point, um, understanding that God's revealing or unveiling mm, or like our eyes one. opening. Uh, thank you, yeah. John. Um, has continued. It didn't stop just because we put into code or we put into leather binding 67 books. Um, and that's frightening for folks. But I hear what you said as true and valuable and rich. But, but I there's people in the pulpit that teach and preach that revelation of God or spiritual truths stopped with the Bible, that since the Bible there hasn't been any other, that, that revelation isn't ongoing. Uh, we, we have the book. Then, uh, what about, then what about the sermon that I preached about an hour ago in John 16, the Holy, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. Religious truth, psychological truth, sociological truth, philosophical, religious truth, 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 truth. Come on. Truth, I, spirit of truth. I, I so took, you can I go took, back and listen to my sermon on St. John. <laughs> I took <laughs> notes. I was sitting right over here. You were taking notes. I was. Yeah, people thought I was texting my... You were too. Yeah. But so lead us into all truth. Jesus said, we'll lead us into all truth. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Is that spiritual truth only? Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit's interested in... So, so it's not just the Bible. All truth isn't in the Bible. I used to think that. Unfolding Revelation, you mentioned that. And then the reading from Rob Bell today. Ooh, we, we've got to get that and share it. Maybe, maybe next week with what John shares or with mine. It might fit real well with mine. Uh, f faith, faith is about being with others. God is faithful, and his faithfulness ex is expressed by being with us. And that so gets us out of then turning everything into this legal uh, relationship of have to do and do-it-yourself religion and, and all of those kind of things. Wow, guys, if, if there aren't any other questions coming, Kathy said be sure... Uh, be sure to watch last week if you haven't heard it yet. Oh, I think that's an encouragement okay. to her, right? Okay, and then uh, Jack and Kathy are watching this morning. They say they're absorbing. They're absorbing and pondering. Yes, that's good. Good. Sometimes it's a rock in a pond and it just begins to ripple. Or the raindrop. I, I would like to suggest three little points real fast in, in this. When we hold on to our, the Bible 
as we understand it. Um, I'm going to suggest that a lot of seeing the Bible as a constitution, to use your phrase, Jeff, is really fear-based as opposed to faith-based. Yes. Um, it, it, it's rooted in this has to be the truth because I, I need to hang my hat on this because if I don't, if it's wrong or... Um, and then, of course, you get into translation issues. But I, I would suggest it's a progressive point in, in loving the Bible, but there's still fear there. Um, that's why it has to be the conclusive truth, and there's no other revelation beyond the Bible kind of idea. Excellent. Thank you. Well, everybody, just before we uh, go to communion, we want to tell somebody happy birthday. Guess whose birthday it is today? Guess whose birthday? And Guess thank you birthday. that he's not in his birthday suit. He's not in his birthday suit. <laughs> just saying. He, he, now, this is oh, what... no, the, no, 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 no. Th this is what Ralph <laughs> spoke about, how that we advance and we, we grow and we mature. So he used to be in his birthday suit, but today he's in a Hawaiian shirt. And so we want to wish uh, the illustrious John Master Giovanni... Happy birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you, folks. Thanks, guys. And with that Hawaiian shirt, we see there is still room for improvement and maturity. <laughs> yes. So, spoken truly between two friends. <laughs> uh, we are going to pass out communion here, the, the cup and the bread. We invite you to join us there with the elements that you've gathered. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of music here, maybe if we can splash that into things and, and uh, background and we'll. While you're, doing, while you're doing that, I gotta say one thing, it's not about this, it's about Wes. Um, my daughter last week was telling our congregation that we, um, we were doing this panel. Now my daughter is an avid Harry Potter fan, if anybody knows Harry Potter. And so she said, so dad, Dr. John, he's on with Ralph Rickenbach, Jeff Corson, and Weasley Dunbar. 